0: conspiracy show with Richard sat from Zuma radio am 740 welcome
1: once again to the audio imaginarium this is the conspiracy show and my name is Richard Serrett. had a great time last night and into early this morning at the George Norrie live event I finally got to uh, to meet George uh, actually that was the second time I met him in Washington at the X conference uh, now that I remember and I also met uh, Tom heiser his producer. And it was uh, very thoughtful uh, and grace, uh, gracious of, of George to introduce me and uh, uh, or as his colleague at uh, Coast to Coast AM. And I'll be uh, guest hosting Coast next Friday the 14th, Saturday the 15th. And uh, then I'll be doing the JFK special on Coast to Coast on November the 22nd. And uh, after the conference, uh, my good friend R. Gary Patterson... Uh, who really uh, sort of unraveled the whole Paul is Dead mystery. That was his first book, The Walrus is Paul. Uh, uh, Gary and I uh, uh, spent the night out on uh, the town at Greek Town. enjoyed uh, some moussaka and some, uh, some saganaki. And speaking of Greece, the mighty Aphrodite ran in the Athens Marathon yesterday. She ran the 10K, actually. And uh, at the completion of the run, all the participants entered the, uh, the old Olympic Stadium in Athens, this beautiful marble edifice, uh, and they do their their victory lap, and she was very moved by that, sent me some pictures. So uh, if you're listening, Mighty Aphrodite, I'm very proud of you, and uh, I miss you. The boys miss you. Come home soon, safe and sound. Sunday, November the 16th, the clock is ticking. Uh, I'll be in Oshawa hosting my conference, Follow the Truth, the Conspiracy Show Summit. And I'm really excited and and proud of the lineup of of speakers. If you haven't purchased your pass, please do so. Uh, Call the box office, 905-721-3399. You can visit followthetruth.tv for more details. We're going to be drawing for some uh, great prizes. One uh, winner will have an opportunity to co-host this radio program with me. Another prize will be dinner with yours truly. Maybe, that, maybe that's not such a great prize. Uh, and we're, all, we're also uh, going to award a, a lucky win, winner a free past life regression with world-renowned past life regression therapist Debbie Papadakis, who will also be speaking at the conference. Hope to see you there. Once again, box office number to order your pass, nine zero five seven two one thirty three ninety nine. Use the code word ROSWELL for a 25% discount. Follow the thetruth.tv for more details. All right, um, Ebola continues uh, to be a huge story. We're now, I believe, around 13,000 infected, about 5,000 dead, and it's not going away anytime soon. And when, going back to February of this year, when uh, news of the, um, the first Ebola cases started to come out of uh, Western Africa, uh, and then, of course, it started to ratchet up. By May, Sierra Leone had reported their first death. June, Monrovia, Liberia, reported its first cases. Uh, in uh, in July, the virus spread to Nigeria. The uh, the end of July, uh, the the man who led Sierra Leone's fight against the epi- epidemic f- uh, died from Ebola. Uh, then we had, of course, the uh, the the, U- the U.S. missionaries, uh, including Dr. Kent Brantley, who were infected with Ebola in Liberia. They were flown to Atlanta for treatment. They recovered. Uh, we had the uh, the first uh, death uh, in Dallas of a uh, librarian a librarian librarian sorry, Liberian, uh, who traveled to the United States. Uh, anyway, as this was going on, I I, I, um, I was reminded of a conversation I had, or a series of conversations I had many years ago, nearly 20 years ago, uh, with the author of a book called Emerging Viruses, AIDS and Ebola, Nature, Accident, or Intentional. And uh, in the book, Dr. Len Horowitz, who is a Harvard University-trained public health expert wrote, or posited at that time, that Ebola had been weaponized and was already airborne. And then it started to make sense to me. Why all of these health care officials and nurses and doctors who were taking extraordinary measures not to get infected, why were they getting infected? They couldn't even answer. And then, as I say, I remembered that conversation back in 19. 19- Ninety-six. Dr. Len Horowitz uh, joins us now on the line from his home in Hawaii. Dr. Len, how are you? It's been a while. Oh,
2: wonderful, Richard. Thanks for having me on. Urgent, urgent problem with Ebola.
1: Nineteen ninety-six, almost twenty years ago. Uh, just explain how how Ebola could be weaponized. What what does that mean exactly?
2: Well. During the largely funded, mostly secret special virus cancer program that ran from 1962 to the uh, late 1970s, 1978, in fact, they were actually doing what was called crude bench virology recombinant, uh, basically mutating viruses to make them extremely lethal for use in biological warfare as well as for commercial profit through vaccine corporations. Of course, before you have a vaccine, you have to have the virus. And if you've got, like, for example, Ebola, there's been many, many vaccines that are out there, even though you're watching the mainstream media do its spin, claiming, oh, now we're fast-tracking Ebola vaccines because it's so urgent. We've got all these deaths in the emergency. Well, they've had vaccines for Ebola, and they've been suppressing cures for Ebola, along with creating Ebola in the lab. And I base that statement, creating Ebola in the lab, is because we have a substantial amount of scientific evidence to base that statement on. In fact, if we were to bring it before any jury of reasonable people, they would look at the United States government contracts, as well as the pleadings of the conference attendees who were discussing these matters of how and where and why Ebola first broke out, and the conclusion that they came up with is essentially the same conclusion that I published in the book, Emerging Viruses, in Ebola.
1: And as I say, at that time, in 96, you posited that it was already airborne. Uh, does that explain why these nurses and doctors who can't, who can't understand, how am I get, catching Ebola? Uh, you know, I'm putting on the, the rubber gloves and taking extraordinary measures, and yet they're getting Ebola.
2: Well, that's part of it. You know, the the airborne aspect of Ebola is where somebody sneezes and, like, cut, you can catch a flu that way. Basically, you've got other blood. You've got uh, diarrhea. You've got the spillage. You've got basically people who are vomiting and spillage and spraying and splashing. And then you've got to remember to take your garments off in a most uh, infectious, controlling uh, manner. Uh, and you need special equipment which is part of the absurdity of expecting the American healthcare system to respond effectively to a level 4 biological weapon that Ebola is and so you know you're you're not prepared for biological warfare in civilian society and uh, non military and basically i think what you're witnessing is the result of that not only confusion but actually in my opinion it's basically a, a political and financial ploy.
1: They're, they're, they're saying that this is the Zaire uh, strain of Ebola, which I, I always thought was uh, the most serious strain, not that it's all serious, but this was the strain where, where we, we had people hemorrhaging out of you know all of the, the major, the orifices of the body, from the eyes, from the ears, from the nose, their, 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 their organs essentially liquefied, and yet I'm not seeing that with these, with these victims. Are we in fact talking about the Zaire strain here?
2: Well, that's what the officials at the World Health Organization and CDC have claimed from the beginning that it is. And that statement, that claim is outrageously incriminating, not because we're not dealing with Ebola's a year, but the fact that if it is true what they're saying, and they've had it supposedly confirmed over and over again, then what it indicates is that there was a refrigerator that was used in the crime of releasing Ebola Because essentially, the last Ebola Zaire outbreak occurred in 1976, over 1,000 miles away from Guinea and Liberia, in the Congo, Zaire. Uh, So they call it Ebola Zaire, and 1976, 38 years later, over 1,000 miles away, and a virus that mutates rapidly. Because Richard, as you probably may remember when we talked about this last, when you take a new virus and you use those types of crude laboratory techniques to recombine them and weaponize them, it's not like they've been around for millennia growing naturally and they become thereby stable in their growth and development, their evolution. Here you've got a situation where it mutates rapidly. So for the same virus to break out over 1,000 miles away over 38 years later and blame it on fruit bats is absolutely outrageously ridiculous. And the only thing that you can basically conclude from how outrageously ridiculous it is is that you've got concealment of scientific evidence, truth, you've got fraud, you've got consumer fraud, you've got basically racketeering and organized crime, dealing with an, an enterprise, a drug enterprise, a vaccine enterprise, that is taking advantage of people's susceptibilities to frights that are media-driven. Then you begin to realize, holy smoke, the drug industrialists are completely in bed with the media industrialists. They're virtually one and the same. People like Rupert Murdoch, James Murdoch, who is non-executive director of Smith, Klein, Beecham, advancing their vaccines, and the major vaccine producer, Merck Pharmaceutical Company. Oh, gee whiz. His father, Rupert Murdoch, just happens to be the major Merck investor working with the Merck organization to spread H1N1 vaccines when that came out. You remember when we talked? talked about that in 2009 with the, with the swine flu fright. So you've got basically a conspiracy involving pharmaceutical- industrial media and then national security interests in the United States, with CDC officials lying to people, and it's becoming actually more clear daily as the things that they've been telling us are not holding up.
1: Dr. Len Horowitz is with us. Harvard-educated, and trained public health official or public health expert, and the author uh, of numerous books. But we're we're sort of dialing back to 1996 and uh, his book, Emerging Viruses: AIDS and Ebola, Nature, Accident or Intentional. Now, what is going on with uh, this patent? That is it the CDC that allegedly has this this patent on one of the strains
2: of Ebola? Mm -hmm. Well, that's what I'm saying to you. And, And again, everything that you read in mainstream media particularly is contrived. It's all spun. And like I've been saying, they've had patents. They don't not patent. When you create a new microbe, you know, the guys that do it working for under government contracts if they see any capacity to profit they're going to patent it so you're looking at the technology and because it's the programs were classified in fact how i found The NIH contract number uh, 20, uh, NIH grant number 712025, that's 1971. 2025 was the quote, investigations of viral carcinogenesis in primates, under which numerous AIDS like and Ebola like viruses were bioengineered by the Army's sixth top biological weapons contracting lab called Litton Bionetics. They are a medical subsidiary of the mega-military weapons contractor called Litton Industries. They ran the entire National Cancer Institute. They administered all of the money, all the programs, going through Fort Detrick, Maryland. That's America's premier biological weapons testing center. So it's not a small company. It's not kind of like, you know, the, the fact is that they concealed that the truth that I'm telling you now—that I found because of the contract, they concealed that information. It's been classified. So really, what they did in terms of patenting, in terms of creating the earliest vaccines, and then basically concealing all this and having it pop out of a refrigerator—you know, 38 years later—is uh, it's outrageous. It's absolutely. There's no words to describe this right. level of demonic iatrogenicide, genocide, you know, All right. through doctors. Doctor, and
1: Dr. Len, we'll, we'll take a time out and sure. we'll come back and uh, continue to discuss Ebola. Dr. Len Horowitz here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. And as we approach Remembrance Day and Veterans Day in the United States, I just want to uh, send out a special hello to uh, all all our veterans, uh, both sides of the border. And uh, uh, thank you. Thank you for your, your service. Uh, Dr. Len Horowitz is with us discussing Ebola. This is uh, another frightening scenario, uh, uh, Len. The United States now has pledged as many 4,000 troops uh, into West Africa. Uh, and, you know, th- these uh, soldiers are going to go in there with very little training, I'm guessing, in terms of how to deal with an outbreak like this. And it harkens back to 1918 when we had all of these troops packed onto uh, the passenger ships and so forth, returning home. And many people forget that, that uh, the First World War uh, actually ended probably earlier than it would have had it not been for the Spanish flu outbreak. And, and, and um, how did it get to America? probably from returning soldiers. This is a recipe for disaster.
2: Oh, you're absolutely right. You know, Richard, we have on vimeo.com slash forward revolution television. It's our channel on Vimeo, uh, vimeo vimeo.com revolution television channel, where you see that we did a couple of specials on Ebola already. One is the most recent. I actually give you a nine-step protocol to cure Ebola. And my point is raised by your, your comment here. If instead of sending military personnel and spending minimally $750 million over the next six months, is what President Obama stated, we would arm those military personnel, not with guns, but with oxygenation technologies, water purification technologies, good hydration, alkalinization technologies, oxygenation, as I mentioned, and good nutrition and uh, silver hydrosols such as oxysilver, you would not see Ebola actually expanding. What you would see is what we're actually hearing. We, we just had the other night uh, two guests from Liberia on the air with us on another radio interview, and they said that, according to what they're witnessing in their media and in their community, is that there's a reduction already in the number of cases, and they were very hopeful that it wouldn't spread. But look at what you mentioned earlier. Look at the fact that you had these cases come back infected from Liberia Doctors and nurses you've read about in the news, and they've all been cured. Now, how did that happen? It happened because of the nine-step protocol that I've advanced. Now, why isn't the media telling you that there's a way to cure Ebola? Because, again, the fright makes money, and the money is making people wealthy, not simply in the pharmaceutical industry, but militarily. So we're very concerned about the fraud that's ongoing here under the guise of public health and national security
1: uh Do you see the possibility that this Ebola outbreak could become as large as the spanish flu epidemic which which the mortality rate for Spanish flu was only about five percent correct I am concerned
2: uh, again. First of all, also, I've been saying, as you know, for you, you know, you interviewed me many, many years ago, you mentioned that, and I've been saying from the very beginning, this is like a famous quote of mine no epidemic in Earth's history has ever evolved into a pandemic without major socioeconomic and political upheaval. End quote. What is the major socioeconomic and political upheaval you have today? Well, you've got all the baby boomers now who are ripe for their Social Security payments. You've got, you know, essentially Bill Gates, who is MS, of course, Microsoft, NBC, heavily involved in vaccinations. You've got the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is the world's leading funding agency, actually vaccine trafficking enterprise that is actually through the media, such as MSNBC. And again, like I mentioned, Rupert Murdoch who runs the Wall Street Journal, who runs News Corp, 20th Century Fox, uh, Time Warner, et cetera, et cetera, you begin to realize the conflicting, gross conflicting interests, and you begin to realize that we're looking at a commercial racketeering enterprise that is actually committing this genocide. And and we sit back, you know, unfortunately being uninformed. Most people are uninformed. And as a result of that, we don't even choose what is wise for us to do, such as the non- step protocol I mentioned.
1: Let's talk about the the, the, uh, the protocol a little bit more, uh, alkanization and, and oxygenation and, and, and so forth. How does that work exactly?
2: Well it works exactly like you've seen it worked. Here, here you've got the doctors who were the doctors without borders being infected in Liberia. They come back, they rush back to the United States. Instead of, instead of having a mortality rate between 60 and 80 percent, which they have in Africa, You come to the United States and you're given good hydration. Hydration, it works because when you have Ebola and you're, as you mentioned, your organs are kind of dissolving, your blood vessels are bleeding, and you're losing fluids, and you're vomiting, and you have diarrhea, well, you lose your fluids. So hydration, rehydration with good pure water is essential. That's number one. Number two is if you basically use alkalinized water, Alkalinized water re-energizes everything, and it prohibits infectious diseases such as Ebola from growing in the body. That's very well known. We could go, we could spend, you know, 10, 15 minutes explaining why that happens. It's a magnificent revelation. It certainly deserves our time, but I don't know if we've got that much time. Step three. Okay, step one, rehydration. Step two, alkalinization. Step three, oxygenation. Man, we live off of oxygen. And basically, it carries the electron, the alkalinizing electron. And we even know that that electron that's produced by the chlorophyll in plants vibrates at a specific frequency of greenish-yellow color. That's 528 nanometers of light. And we even advance because we're working with some of the world's leading physicists and mathematicians and people who have actually even structured the way in which the universe itself is manifested, materialized, musically, mathematically, and we realize that 528 hertz frequency is that magnificent vibration, great vibration, that is associated with oxygenation. So basically, step three, oxygenation. Every way you can put more oxygen into a person's body, regardless of what disease, the diseases tend to go away. So step four is the... the, remineralization because again the minerals carry electrons which is where the human energy comes from all everything that moves moves because of electrons Uh, my voice your voice on this radio is being heard because of electron flow and so basically same thing with lighting systems whatever it's all electron flow through copper wire in the lighting systems so if you understand that and you understand minerals your body is made of 80 percent ocean water and 20 percent lava rock and the lava rock is all the minerals in the periodic table and that's where the action is if you want to restore your health and we basically make you uh, prevent diseases and even impregnable against infectious diseases you then increase your minerals you increase your hydration your alkalization, your oxygenation so there's, a, again, the sadness is that people are losing those, those minerals when they have Ebola and other kinds of infectious diseases that deplete the minerals. Uh, step five is where you get into good nutrition. Well, again, mineralization, good nutrition, go hand in hand. Uh, step six deals with electromedicine, heavily suppressed, like the rife frequency generators. Ebola is a virus. Clearly, viruses we know are made of protein, crystals, and crystals break. You shatter them with certain frequencies. You remember Ella Fitzgerald BASF BASFK advertisement. Is it
1: live or is it Memorex,
2: right? Yeah, I was Memorex, right, right, right. And so uh, thanks for the correction. She belts out this magnificent sound in the glass fractures, the crystal glass fractures in her hand, but the room doesn't fall in. So it's the same thing with the human body you want to shatter the crystal viruses in your body, you hit it with a certain frequency, such as 528, and bang, it's gone. And so, that's, uh, electromedicine, of course, goes into uh, many aspects that have been suppressed.
1: Sure, you know, Tesla the, as well. Tesla that's right. was onto that.
2: absolutely. Tesla was totally into it. Tesla's complete genius, totally understood exactly what we're talking about now. And uh, I actually, another great video, if you want to kind of like get into this, On Revolution Television Channel, on Vimeo.com, you can look at natural cure for global warming. And I produced that because Bill Gates said that the cure for global warming, and he said this over a TED conference, you can watch it on YouTube, is that we're going to vaccine people and we're going to intoxicate them, basically. He says, I love vaccines because it's going to reduce the population. By 15%. So that's about, you know, let's say about 800 million people are going to die from getting vaccinated, and Bill Gates loves that.
1: Well, Well, let me just because I I, I look at it a different way. Now, I mean, the whole vaccination issue aside, isn't his argument that if you can reduce infant mortality, people in developing countries will, will make the conscious decision to have fewer children? Isn't that his, his, his rationale?
2: Yeah, but it's not practically sound. It's a fraud. It's an absolute fraud. Take a look at what's happening here in the United States from the vaccines of the youth. You've got autistic spectrum disorder skyrocketing off the charts because of the mercury toxicity, whatever or else. You've got the women who get, when they're pregnant, they get vaccinated or the infants get vaccinated. You've got literally 30% of black women in the United States are sterile now because sterilization agents, nonoxinol-9, for example, is in the vaccines as one of the ingredients. So you've got to take into consideration what the propagandists are not telling you. For, you know, you've also, for example, have read the headlines of what is the mortality and morbidity associated with iatrogenic diseases, that is, doctor and hospital-induced illnesses, 15% of patients that go into hospitals come out with diseases that they didn't have when they went in. That's a fact. It's been scientifically studied, and it's been published in the scientific literature. But they never tell you how many injuries from vaccines. That's the biggest money maker and intoxicator of all. And so just given the fact that that information, A, they claim is not available because they haven't done the continuing studies, because they don't want to really know how many people are dying and are sick from vaccines or how many cancers have been induced by the vaccines. They don't want that information to come out. And then the concealment. You know, in law, omissions and misrepresentations is fraud. And when you take data and you bury it, you conceal evidence, that's minimally a misdemeanor. And when you're dealing with actually killing people, that's a class A felony. And in fact, under the circumstances, it's treason and it's a seditious conspiracy under the laws of the United States of America. So this is the magnitude of the challenge that we face with these liars, these omitters, these misrepresenters in health care centers for disease control who are now taking direction from the Rockefeller-directed World Health Organization, and now you've got the results of your racketeering and organized crime. You've got the public frightened to death. You've got a biological level four bioweapon spreading, and you've got massive amounts of money made on Wall Street by companies such as Merck and the manufacturers of the infection control equipment, Sterilization, disinfection, waste disposal, barrier protection, new showers, new lighting systems, new ultraviolet light door locks between your patient care facilities and your doctor's, uh, you know, uh, and, and your patient's waiting rooms. You, you've got something that is completely menacing, ongoing, under the guise of
1: public health. If you were if you had the power to make this decision, we'll we'll head into a break. I'll get you to answer after. But would you institute a no fly uh, policy? Nobody comes into the United States or North America from uh, these these countries where the outbreak is occurring in Africa and nobody flies from North America into these hot zones. We'll uh, discuss with Dr. Len Horowitz, author of Emerging Viruses, when The Conspiracy Show returns. Stay with us. Welcome back. Dr. Leonard Horowitz stays with us, the author of Emerging Viruses, AIDS and Ebola, Intentional – uh, sorry, Nature, Accident or Intentional. Uh, we were asking you before the break uh, whether you, or, or not you would institute sort of a no-fly zone. Here in Canada, uh, our government has suspended visas for residents of these outbreak countries, which is essentially, uh, you know, banning
2: travel. So what would you do in the United States? I would do the same thing. I applaud them because they did something that was righteous. They weren't criminally negligent because our president, Obama, didn't do that. And it's actually criminal negligence and it's gross hypocrisy that you would allow people to come in from that infected country under these circumstances that we have today, these emergency circumstances and risk national security, risk everything you have as a nation state, and, the, if you uh, you know, because you're dealing with mass people dying, you've got to be responsible in making a decision. And it's hypocritical to claim that you're going to quarantine people, but you're not going to quarantine the nation.
1: Give us a sense of how uh, ill-equipped the United States uh, would be for an outbreak. Let's say we get a, a cluster that develops in the United States. There's something like 11 flights from West African countries into New York uh, on a daily basis, I understand.
2: I'm extremely concerned, Richard. As When this thing happened and it broke out, I mean, that's why I immediately, again, we have on the videos up on Vimeo.com Revolution Television. Instantly, I said, we've got to do something about this because I'm extremely concerned that this is what I had envisioned would happen 20 years ago, wrote about, so that we could serve public health, we could serve the public's interest and protection, and yet I've been censored grossly censored. My book has been censored. Mention of me has been censored. And the reality is, why would they do that? If I was simply a conspiracy theorist, Richard, if I was wrong, they'd be all the hell over me. They would be discrediting me up and down, making an example out of me, Oh, that fool Horowitz. But you know what they've done? They've just censored me. They don't want to talk, uh, mention me, and they have all these articles coming out about Ebola. They talk about all the other people who are relatively easily discredited. Nobody comes to the subject with, the, with a Harvard degree, with a background that I have, the scientific peer review publications, the books, the films, the videos. They don't want to talk about the contracts that I deliver. And the reality is that is one of the smoking guns. Because, again, if I was so wrong... If I was telling you something that wasn't true, I would I would not be completely neglected. And that, again, is censorship. That, again, is a violation in the United States of First Amendment rights, and that's a violation worse than that uh, of treason and sedition, because you're now moving a population into high-risk behavior. Is it too late? Is it too late to contain this? I, I don't know that. I don't know the answer to that question. I really, I pray... I honest I pray every day that this will go away uh, it's a nightmare it for me knowing what I know about Ebola what is taking place is beyond disgusting it is nightmarish beyond words and uh, you know it's it, to me all I have to do you know all I can do is pray over it and even if my prayers are not realized I have to accept it as simply You know, creators will weigh. It's the karma. You know, I'm living in Hawaii. You know, right down the street, we've got Pele, the lava flow. It passed my house the other day. I kid you not. This morning, the entire house, because of the forest is on fire, it smelled like a forest fire. You know, some things you can't stop. And you can do your best, but the creator has a plan, and I'm maybe ignorant of the plan. I just need to do whatever I can do is it inevitable
1: that there will be clusters developing not to be unduly alarmist but let's you know let's we got to stare this thing square in the face here uh, is it inevitable that there will be clusters
2: developing in the united states uh, i'm working feverishly in the hope that it's not inevitable you know again if the words that i shared tonight with you get out and the protocol that I've shared gets out. And what we have is a continuation of spreading light. The darkness flees. The darkness, the evil, the genocide, it doesn't stand the light of truth, reason, and law. And so, you know, you've got man's law, you've got creator's law, and basically if you can bring the two together, you've got a disappearance of all the ills, in my opinion. And, you know, I work daily, you know, 16, sometimes 18 hours a day to constantly put out these kinds of truths. I I pray that it's not inevitable, and I'm actually praying that what we've seen in terms of a disappearance of some of the cases or some of the risks, again, I'm hearing from Africa. And I've been in touch with uh, Liberian health ministers. I've been in touch with other health ministers throughout uh, African countries. They're very familiar with my book, Emerging Viruses. They're very familiar with my work. I've been actually invited over there on a couple different occasions to present information uh, for some, even the royal family of Gabon. So, I mean, I'm just praying that all the work that we do will help to save some lives and that we will be able to then uh, stop Ebola. Whether it's going to happen or not, I don't know.
1: All right, uh, stay put, uh, Len. We'll come back and uh, one more segment and uh, continue to discuss uh, Ebola. I'd also like to find out about this bioweapons lab that's situated inside a hospital in Sierra Leone. Dr. Len Horowitz, author of Emerging Viruses, AIDS and Ebola... Nature, accident, or intentional. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. I'll be uh, away at the uh, the Follow the Truth uh, Conspiracy Show Summit in Oshawa, but we will have a brand new program for you that we're, we're cobbling together and uh, included in the mix uh, it'll, as we approach now the 51st anniversary of the JFK, JFK assassination. Uh, Gail Nix-Jackson uh, will be with us. Uh, she is the granddaughter of Orville Nix, and uh, if you don't know about Orville Nix, interesting. Uh, everyone focuses, of course, on the Abraham Zapruder film uh, that uh, documents uh, those tragic moments in Dallas on November the 22nd. But Orville Nix's uh, video footage is equally... Com- well, not it's arguable, but it's a very important uh, a film because he has the exact opposite angle of the Zapruder film. He actually shows... We see the, the uh, grassy knoll in Orville Nix's footage... And uh, when you couple that together with the fact that many people, including Forrest Sorrells, who was uh, the uh, the lead um, uh, Secret Service agent in charge of security that day, Sorrells believes shots came from the Grassy Knoll. And just about everyone Orville Nix talked to that day said, yes, the shots came from over there in the Grassy Knoll. So I'll talk with uh, Orville Nix's granddaughter uh, next week. On the uh, conspiracy show, Dr. Len Horowitz stays with us for a few moments yet uh, the author of emerging viruses we 're talking about what else the Ebola outbreak and uh, I wanted to ask you about the um, this uh, bioweapons lab I believe it 's a level two and it 's situated inside a uh, a hospital in Sierra Leone. Now the government uh, closed it down but but tell us about uh, uh, Kenema uh,
2: the Kenema this is is you, the, the, well, I'm looking at several uh, biological weapons operations, not just that one. We've got many of them in many of the nations, and and what is the most uh, relevant issue to me is why would, for example, uh, we show you in our film, and it's called uh, the one that I'm recommending on Vimeo.com, Revolution Television, is called... Um, it's called let's see viral viral immunity Ebola top secret disclosures, and there you'll see that in sierra in in Liberia monkey Island, and you'll see there the New York City blood bank paid for it basically it it was a large operation with chimpanzees testing for the supposedly hepatitis b vaccines exclusively but i don't believe it and they show you there a very similar lab to the one that you're talking about there in liberia the liberia biological medicine group that was supposedly defunct when the new york university medical center and the new york blood bank people came in with the hepatitis b vaccine experiments and of course with those they had developed mutations, mutants of hepatitis A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I mean, you basically, you didn't have hepatitis B. Uh, I show you in the book Emerging Viruses, AIDS and Ebola. What you had was what's called the Australian antigen. It was referenced by the, the letters A, U, A, G, which is the initials for silver and gold in the elemental table. So the silver and gold in virology back in the 60s was the hepatitis B agent. And then they modified it. They mutated it and hybridized it. And now we have the whole alphabet of hepatitis viruses, and many of them they claim are linked to cancer. Again, Richard, my uh, conclusion is that this whole system not only is just out of control, but it's a commercial racketeering enterprise, and they're making money off of humanity's ignorance and suffering.
1: Well, the fact that – uh, I come back to uh, the Sierra Leone uh, bioweapons lab uh, in, at, at Kenema. The fact that the Sierra Leone government were to close that uh, – and, and this happened, I believe, just after one of Sierra Leone's leading doctors supposedly died of, of Ebola. What, 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 what are we being told? That the, that the outbreak is occurring in hospitals?
2: We're being told that primarily the spread is uh, by people who are infected who are obviously traveling by foot or by river boats or terrestrially, not so much by the air. We're we're being told that there's a great risk in the, the dead bodies being cared for appropriately with the full garments, the entire hazmat suits. Those kinds of interventions by the military right now is what we're told has been dramatically reducing the amounts of the spread. Uh, again, I'm alarmed by the numbers that you read that the World Health Organization has told us about. I'm concerned that the, that maybe we're looking at something like I'm saying. We're looking at not just a, you know, a spontaneous outbreak that's inexplicable, We're looking at a conspiracy. We're looking at a genocidal conspiracy, whereby people are not just making money, but they have an intention because, again, the global economy is in bad shape. Everybody knows that. And, again, you've got a lot of people who are waking up. You've got communication systems with the Internet like you've never had before for the relay of information, Whereby suddenly people are waking up to the government malfeasance, which we've seen this last week with the Centers for Disease Control completely being disgraced, everything that they told us you know where they're flipping stuff, and they from one day to the next, you don't know what the hell they're going to do or say, and ultimately, people realize you know it's out of control, and they're not uh, governments are not looking for people's best interests like. President Obama ruled, you know, we're going to leave the airlines open, we're going to have more people coming to the United States. In my opinion, it's gross negligence, but basically, what does it do in the big big picture? It increases the threat, the fear. The fear drives the money, the marketing, it drives the vaccines, it drives the drugs, it drives the military, it drives virtually every kind of commercial operation, fear is basically your mover and shaker. And then it drives the money, and it drives the power into the hands of those who have stated that they wish to reduce the population of the planet by about, oh, let's say, 6 billion people from 7 billion. They want to kill off 6 billion and leave 1 billion. And again, that takes kind of uh, you know, special uh, technologies, such as Ebola, It's it's the ideal biological weapon to do that, really. Uh, And and if the scenario that you have raised actually happens, whereby in a metropolitan area such as Boston or New York or Toronto, this thing actually starts to spread. And like you saw last week, you had a woman who actually had a court judge say, no, you don't have to stay in quarantine. You can go out because you're not showing symptoms at this point. And yet... You know the risk is being spread, then the potential for it spreading, and then doing the uh, the apocalyptic uh, result. Uh, that we are very concerned about. You know, that's a very, in my opinion, a reality.
1: Uh, Len, leave us with the, uh, the website where people can see these videos again.
2: Yeah, it's a great, great uh, resource. It's vimeo.com, V-I-M-E-O dot The reason it, we're not on YouTube is they censored me on YouTube. They pulled down my Wikipedia website. I'm being re- horribly censored. But anyway, vi- uh, we still have vimeo.com, Revolution Television and uh, there you'll see the Ebola special reports and you'll see the new one which gives you the nine-step protocol. I would urge everybody to read it and to integrate the information and then uh, I think you'll be much wiser and I think you'll be thankful for the information.
1: Len, always a pleasure. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Richard. Be blessed. Thanks. Bye.
1: Dr. Len Horowitz. Uh, Last week on the program, George Freund from uh, the very popular Conspiracy Ca- uh, Cafe podcast joined me, and we talked about uh, the Ottawa shooting, of course, and some of the oddities surrounding that, that horrible tragedy. And I, I just wanted to clarify something that I've since learned about uh, since last week's broadcast. One of the odd things that's been pointed out is that in the aftermath of the shooting rampage, uh, the CBC, uh, Evan Solomon, for example, showed footage of what appeared to be nine bullet holes in a wall near the parliamentary library. And the only problem with that uh, is someone discovered a tour of the parliamentary buildings that was featured on Google Earth dated April 2013 showed the same wall with the same nine marks which weren't actually bullet holes. Uh, and so this has, was seen as as proof positive that the entire shooting was a hoax and the bullet holes weren't real and this Google Earth footage Again, from April 2013 was the smoking gun. Uh, But since then, I've discovered uh, that CBC actually acknowledged this mistake. They retracted it and admitted that those weren't bullet holes. Uh, But it's important to point out, in the interest of of fairness and balance, uh, because we need to get this right. Not that there aren't a lot of other unanswered questions, but on this point, we need to point out that there were other bullet holes found in door jams around the library, bullet holes in windows. Uh, In other words, there were bullets fired inside the parliamentary buildings near the library, and I don't believe the CBC or Evan Solomon were part of a a cover-up. But again, there are still many unanswered questions and oddities that need to be addressed, of course, such as how... Michael zahaf Bibo managed to cross the United States on four separate uh, occasions. We're being told four separate occasions despite having an extensive criminal record and no passport. Can you imagine post 9-11 getting into the United States? Not once, not twice, not three times, but four times without a passport and a criminal record. That doesn't add up, But ha- but we still need to verify with 100% certainty that that is in fact the case, that he did cross the border into the United States on four separate occasions. And of course, there is still the, the, uh, the lack of blood at the war memorial where Corporal Nathan Cirillo died, despite being shot at very close range with a rifle. Anyway, that's the latest. And I just wanted to, uh, to, to uh, I guess, correct or clarify that Google Earth uh, video. All right, we, um, we'll be back, and uh, I hope you'll be with us. The website, of course, for the program, richardserrett.com. You can say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. I got a, f- a new follower the other night. It was from the Illuminati. I'm being followed on Twitter by the Illuminati. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. Any any followers I can get, quite frankly, even the Illuminati or the Bilderbergs or the Trilateral Commission. Again, if you want to follow me, Council on Foreign Relations People, it's at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. Thanks for inviting me into your home, as always. Days away now from Follow the Truth, a Conspiracy Show Summit. Sunday, November 16th, Regent Theatre in Oshawa. Come join me. And some truly incredible guests. Guests: uh, Don Schmidt, Roswell Investigator Jim Penniston, of course, key witness to the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident, joining us via Skype from his home. Uh, Professor Ron Mallett will be uh, with us on time travel. Uh, the Epoch Times, I, mean, I don't know if you're familiar with this uh, newspaper, uh, here in, it's uh, it's in the newspaper boxes on all the on many of the major street corners. Uh, it's uh, in thirty, I believe, thirty five countries now, and in and, uh, printed in twenty one different languages. Uh, and they have a column that, a column there. Uh, it's called Beyond Science, and the the writer uh, Tara McIsaac, terrific writer, and uh, she's written a number of pieces on some of some of our upcomers, and I believe. This week's – it's this week's issue, isn't it, Albert? Uh, current issue of the Epoch Times. Just flip it. Uh, it's, I think, in the second section. It's called Beyond Science. And there's an article there about Professor Ronald Mallett and his work to build a time machine. And um, she mentions the fact, of course, that he'll be speaking at our conference on the 16th. So if you ever get a chance, check out the Epoch Times. And uh, my understanding is that it's it's uh, it's owned by – uh, some people connected with the Falun Gong uh, a group out of China. Uh, so, you know, obviously the, the paper has a particular skew or perspective, and uh, it tends to be, you know, anti-Chinese government, but uh, uh, make of that what you will. However, the Beyond Science column, uh, I would uh, direct you there. And uh, I, I, I know that a number of online articles have already been written, for the Epoch Times online version, uh, promoting the conference and talking about some of our other speakers. Uh, Patty Greer, of course, will be here to talk about crop circles. There's a great article in the Epoch Times about Patty Greer. And also Jim Elvidge, who is the author of The Universe Solved, a great uh, piece in an upcoming edition of the Epoch Times on Jim Elvidge. And his uh, theory, which isn't just his. I mean, this is, there's a whole school of, of scientists and philosophers who believe we are living in a digital simulation, the Matrix. So again, I'll uh, direct your attention to the Beyond Science column in the Epoch Times. Tara MacIsaac, wonderful writer, and uh, uh, we'll look for more great articles from her. All right, last month we missed our our visit with Rosemary Ellen Guiley because it was Canadian Thanksgiving. So we're going to make up for that tonight. And uh, Rosemary, standing by, is going to be with us for the full hour. Here's what's going to happen. In the first half, we're going to do our, what's become sort of a regular feature on the program, a regular monthly feature. We're going to do our paranormal news roundup. And then in the second half, or as we say in Radio Land, at the bottom of the hour, at the bottom of the hour, we're going to throw open the phone lines, and I'll give you an opportunity to call in. Perhaps share some of your encounters with things paranormal. We haven't done this in a while on the sh- on the show. Uh, so if you have had uh, encounters with uh, poltergeists, hauntings, shadow people, uh, possessions, curses, you name it, at the bottom of the hour, we can actually o- open up the lines a little earlier than that, but we'll start taking calls at the bottom of the hour with Rosemary Ellen Giley, Or maybe you've got a question for Rosemary. You've got an entity in your house that you need uh, to get rid of. Uh, then now is your opportunity. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, of course, is one of the leading experts in the metaphysical and paranormal fields with 59 books and counting. I think, actually, it's now 60 uh, on a a wide range of paranormal, spiritual, and mystical topics, including nine single-volume encyclopedias. I have most of them in my library at home. Her work is translated into 15 languages, and her present work a focuses on spiritual growth and development, the afterlife, and spirit communications, psychic skills, dream work for well-being, working with angels, past and parallel lives, problem hauntings, entity contact experiences, and investigation of unusual paranormal activity. And she's done groundbreaking research on shadow people and the jinn. Hey, Rosemary, how are you?
3: Hi, Richard. I'm in West Virginia this weekend, and uh, it's been a very intense but wonderful weekend at an annual psychic fair here. I was giving a presentation on dreams and uh, using dreams for creativity and problem solving, and uh, then I did psychic readings uh, for a good chunk of the weekend. Uh, so is that, that Homeward
1: Bound tomorrow. Doing, the, doing those readings, uh, I mean, is that... I would imagine that would be physically exhausting.
3: It really is. It's more tiring than uh, giving talks. You know, I can do an all-day workshop, which uh, takes quite a bit of energy, but uh, readings take um, a different kind of uh, concentration and energy. Uh, You're tuning into people and uh, and doing a lot of readings. You're tuning into a lot of different energies. Um, I'm... Uh, aligning myself with their emotional body, uh, to get information about uh, what's going on in their lives and things that they're dealing with. Most people come to readings for direction. They're looking for uh, new insights and direction, and uh, some of that comes down from the spiritual planes as well. So, um, you know, by the end of the day, that can can really flatten you.
1: A lot going on, obviously, in terms of uh, paranormal news, and uh, uh, recently there was another gathering in the Vatican of some of the Catholic Church's top exorcists. And this is something that uh, for quite a while they didn't really want to talk about, certainly in the wake of the exorcist movies. It was all very sort of hush-hush. And then, of course, there was a very famous uh, incident, widely publicized, when uh, Pope John Paul II actually performed an exorcism in uh, uh, in in the Vatican on a a woman who was uh, apparently possessed. Uh, And now uh, we have Pope Francis declaring his support uh, for exorcisms. What do you make of that?
3: They're certainly more out in the open about it, and they really should be, because exorcisms have been performed throughout history by every religion, um, and um, they've been an important component of uh, spiritual ways of dealing with the dark side influences that can happen to people. And uh, when uh, the Protestant Reformation happened, uh, there were famous exorcism battles between the Catholics and the Protestants in Europe. It was uh, sort of a display of power, like uh, our spiritual connection is better than yours sort of thing, and uh, many famous cases of possessed nuns and monks and um, cases very similar to the movie The Exorcist that really gripped audiences. And then uh, in more modern times, the church started having a a rather uneasy relationship with exorcism. It it, uh, uh, fell into the backwaters of superstition. A lot of priests didn't uh, want to be involved in it or uh, weren't even given the education and training about exorcism and uh, now uh, it's coming back out into the open. People have genuine problems with dark side entities that can exert mental influence, very oppressive influence, uh, can be very damaging in life, and in the worst case scenarios, possession cases, where it is a complete takeover. And uh, people uh, who have uh, you know, religious training need to be educated about it. So the Catholics, of course, are going to have a very Catholic take on what causes these problems and why and what the remedy should be. And the Protestants have their own versions. But uh, I'm glad to see the Catholics uh, step up to the plate again and be open about uh, things that have really gone on in the background. You know, the exorcisms have been performed. Uh, this uh, group that was uh, formed some years ago uh, to educate uh, exorcists in the Church has been a stepchild for um, some time, and now it's getting the recognition it deserves.
1: The International Association of Exorcists, and there were more than 300 members uh, who attended the, the, the convention at the Vatican. So uh, so this the fact that it's growing this International Association of Exorcists, it's now being more publicly acknowledged uh, by uh, the Pope, for example. You're saying that this is, is, is demonstrating that possession is a growing problem.
3: Well, certainly a negative influence by spirits is a growing problem, and these are various forms of possession. Um, you know, the average person, when you say possession of them, they think of things like the exorcist, really extreme cases, but there are much lesser forms of possession as well where people are just sort of like under the influence. They uh, become um, uh, depressed and uh, their relationships fall apart. They have trouble sleeping. Their health begins to deteriorate, and uh, those can be um, the cause caused by unpleasant spirits who've become attached to them. Um,
1: Why is it a growing might, problem? Why is it increasing? Why is it on the, the increase?
3: A number of reasons. Uh, I think there's um, more vulnerability today because uh, people feel exposed. Uh, they're not as secure as they used to be. Uh, the, the dark side seizes opportunity where they find weakness. And when people are in emotional turmoil, that does create uh, weaknesses in people's spiritual defenses. And uh, it doesn't mean that you uh, give yourself over to vice and, you know, depravity or anything like that, but your natural buffers just become weakened, and this varies quite a bit with individuals. So there's a lot of opportunistic kinds of negative influences. Then we have an increased attention uh, to the paranormal and uh, this has encouraged some people to do experimentation with spirit summoning that's uh, downright dangerous and uh, they unwittingly invite things into their uh, their sphere of influence, into their energy field that uh, then latches onto them like a, a, a predator and uh, they can't get rid of it. So um, Uh, Then we have the the influences of vice, and uh, people who are seeking power through manipulation, greed, violence, those sorts of of, uh, things to gain power, fame, uh, money, whatever. And this uh, attracts another kind of opportunistic negative spirit.
1: uh, Oh, sorry, go ahead.
3: I was just going to say that in, in many of the cases I've dealt with in recent years, just in terms of problem paranormal activity, and uh, this has happened to uh, fellow investigators as well, Um, people will often go to religious authorities first for help, whether they're Catholic or Protestant or whatever, and they're turned away because either uh, the clerics don't believe in that sort of thing, or if they do believe it, they're just not equipped to deal with it. So I am glad to see more training out
1: in the open. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com, the website. I was hosting Coast on uh, on Friday, and uh, during the open line segment, Rosemary, I received a number of calls. People had these entities, and they were coming to me for advice. And I I, I said, listen, you know, I'm not qualified. So I, I told them to to, uh, to, to uh, contact you. I hope you don't mind. <laughs> uh, I don't at all. And, in fact, uh, uh,
3: I probably got some of those emails because I... I have gotten some uh, just in the last day or so. Well,
1: you can blame uh, me. With
3: problems.
1: All right, we'll come back and we'll talk about a strange box and its contents in Macedonia, uncovered by a farmer recently. Rosemary Ellen Giley here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. All right, uh, Tim, in the other room, why don't we uh, open up the, uh, the lines and uh, make those available to you. If you want to uh, get on board now... And uh, starting in about uh, ten minutes or so, we can start to take some uh, some calls with Rosemary Ellen Giley, our paranormal uh, researcher investigator, who joins us uh, once a month on the program. And uh, we're just uh, nicely into our paranormal news roundup. Lots going on, uh, and now to Macedonia uh, we go, where a farmer there uh, claims to have uncovered a. Um, uh, he was plowing a field and uh, ran into a box that was chained shut. And um I guess being somewhat brave and curious and perhaps holding, uh, hoping it contained gold or something that might get him his own reality show, he opened the box, and what did he find? A rather strange-looking skull. Rosemary, I'm looking at a picture of it, and it looks, uh, A, it looks pretty legitimate. Uh, it looks real. Um, and B, it uh, doesn't look like any animal I've ever seen. What do you make of this skull? What is it?
3: Uh, well... <clears throat> I don't think it's a werewolf, and uh, I I have to dismiss this one out of hand, Richard. It falls into the category of uh, stuff we see every now and then in the paranormal where someone claims to have found physical remains of a supernatural entity, and it winds up uh, being uh, a hoax, and I think this falls into that category, and there are a number of things that give it away. Uh, One is uh, in, in the original Sense of the word, a werewolf is a human being who transforms into a wolf. And so uh, if you were going to find a a skull of this individual in in wolf form, it would be a wolf skull, uh, not something that looks misshapen and distorted like like this one does. And uh, observers have commented that this looks more like a baboon skull. Uh, or maybe even a small dog skull. It does have uh, features to it that uh, you can certainly see a baboon in it. It's Hollywood and entertainment, which ha- have given us these images of werewolves as being monstrous things uh, that um, are wildly distorted or giant in size with, um, you know, unusual features. Uh, secondly, um, the box didn't seem to be very old. It seemed to be very new. Someone uh, commented that um, from the picture you could tell that uh, the metal on the box wasn't very rusted out. It hadn't been underground very long. Uh, so who would have planted it there and why? And it has an inscription, which the news article didn't translate, but um, some enterprising person ran through uh, Google translation and came up with the the three words, uh, attention, danger, werewolf, highly <laughs> unlikely uh, for, for, someone, for, for a genuine artifact to, to be buried like this. And why just a skull? Uh, so too many questions. It's too questionable. There have even been uh, some doubts cast upon whether or not it's an entire skull or just part of a skull that's also been modified with clay. Uh, And until the skull would actually be examined by uh, an authority... Uh, we we just have to put this down as another one of those crazy hoaxes that just goes around the Internet every now and then.
1: Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us. Her website, visionaryliving, uh, dot com. All right, so not a werewolf, this uh, skull that was uncovered in, in Macedonia, uh, perhaps a baboon skull. Uh, I want to move over to uh, this side of the pond. And there's a great story recently, and very well written, too, uh, I might add, in the New York Times about this uh, this bar in Brooklyn. Uh, that uh, seems to be uh, haunted. Uh, what, what can you tell me about this Brooklyn bar? Uh, I mean, it's a great story. It's called, uh, it's called it the really Sweetwater. It really is,
3: Sweetwater. Yeah. Um, now, I've not been to Sweetwater myself, but I have been to similar establishments in New York City and other cities where uh, there are bars and restaurants that are haunted by a certain range of phenomena related to uh, patrons or former owners uh, sometimes the bars and restaurants are in buildings that were once residential, um, which seems to be the case here. These are legitimate hauntings. Uh, and uh, New York City and environs seems to be home to um, activity of this sort. Uh, this has all the hallmarks of genuine residual haunting, lights that go on and off, uh, glasses that uh, exploded um, people feeling a presence, seeing apparitions. Uh, there was a, a comment in the article about when uh, there was some renovation work being done, there, were, there was a box found with some small bones in it. It looked like kind of a burial thing or memento thing, small animal bones, uh, a small ring. And after, after those items were unearthed and taken out of their resting place, and put on display and one of the busboys even took the ring that seemed to kick up activity and that conforms with uh, very long-standing beliefs about disturbing the peace uh, burial peace and that if something had been buried there along with mementos uh, disturbing it um, might kick up activity uh... quite legitimate to me it's a place i would love to go and investigate
1: yes that's the uh, the sweetwater uh, restaurant uh, which I guess it 's been recently uh, recently reopened with with new owners, but the identity of the of the ghost uh, who who is this uh, ghost supposed to be?
3: Well, usually, in cases like this, uh, people get some idea of who the ghost might be, and uh, here we have people feeling that uh, it 's a woman named Anna Smith who was the daughter of a family. Uh, the Sheka family uh, who uh, bought the building in, I I think it was like the mid-1920s. It was a boarding house originally, and she had actually lived there. Uh, Where we find cases of a personality lingering at a place, it's usually someone who has lived on the uh, premises and who has a strong emotional attachment to it. So that fits Uh, a very well-established type of haunting in the paranormal as well. It could very well be her. Um, People have uh, a sense of catching her apparition, and that it must be her uh, because she was very well-known to uh, people in the neighborhood. Uh, She lived there a long time. uh, And um, um, people like that will often leave Uh, residual emotional energy behind when they pass on and it becomes part of a haunting syndrome.
1: We've got uh, a caller joining us from Ohio. It's
4: John, who apparently had a similar experience. John, welcome. How are you? I'm fine, sir. Thank you. Good to talk to you. You too. Um, Hello, Rosemary. I had an experience. Um, I'm a big fan of yours. I watch you a lot of times on the the vampire shows and on TV. Well, thank you. You're welcome. And... um, I have an experience that happened to my friend and I, and I I never heard anybody really talk about anything like this that happened. But we were we were sitting in my driveway in his car, and we were sitting listening to the radio, and, the, and it was a sort. I guess it was this time of year, and the moon was out, and so there was pretty you know it was there was moon coming down through the through the light. It was pretty lit up in the driveway in the car and that. And my friend looked over and he started laughing, and he pointed over to the door, and on on my driver's side on on the. Right where the door, we opened the door handle there, and um, we saw a pair of. Are you familiar with like the California Ray Ban glasses? What they look like, the sort of like the Blues Brothers type, the black shades. Well, there was yeah. a pair of black shades um, on the side of the door. Just, I mean, sitting there. And my friend and I just looked, and I, I can't. We just still can't believe it to this day and i put my hand in front of the light in front of the light to see if it was just a reflection or something and it wasn't the light it stayed there so we we have no absolutely no idea i don't know if it was something trying to come through or if it was an entity or a being or something from another dimension but John you say they were they were they were lying there do you mean they were hovering there they weren't no, lying,
1: they weren't resting on something
4: no it was like a shadow richard it was like the shadow you, i mean i could touch it but you couldn't um, it was like a, like a shadow. I mean, there weren't. It wasn't physical. It wasn't a physical. You know, it was just like a black shadow, like a shape, the exact shape of a pair of Ray Ban sunglasses, and they were on the door. And I just, we looked at it, and we looked at it, and we watched it for about. I'd say maybe five minutes, and then it, it sort of just faded away. And, it, and just to this day, we still—I've never heard anyone tell a story like that or have that happen. Everybody sees like maybe a, a head or an entity, or you know, an apparition. But this was just a pair of sunglasses, and it, it's just the strangest thing. And, I, and I'm just—I've been baffled, and I just wondered if maybe Rosemary would has ever had anyone have an experience like that, or if she could. Give me some insight on that. That is an
1: odd one, Rosemary. you ever heard anything like that before? Uh,
3: Not quite, Richard and John. Uh, This is very unusual uh, just just to see like a pair of glasses. But it's not unusual to get um, semi-formed impressions of things that uh, are interdimensional in nature. And some of what you picked up on, uh, there are dark entities like shadow forms. They uh, will often not be complete. Uh, when they 're perceived, it can be just like a head or a a, a very vague shape they 're out and uh, in the world and and uh, are, are seen in outside locations and uh, If you could find out something about the area you were in, you might discover that uh, it it has a history of um, mysterious sightings or hauntings. it could be one of these like thin-dimensional boundary areas, you know, a portal area. Um, You might have also picked up on some sort of of residue uh, and why it would be in glasses. Uh, Sometimes we can't even answer these questions. There are trickster entities out there, too, who like to uh, mess around with people, and they're shapeshifters, and they'll come up with some um, very odd manifestation that puzzles people. And uh, they're unsettling um, because nobody knows what it is. The way it, uh, it appeared and faded it it I mean, out I, I, it sounds residual to me.
4: It was very strange. It, like I said, it just nothing else came. We were sitting, you know, we thought maybe we'd see a head or something come through, or just, and but no, it was just the glasses and i don't know i it was just so strange i mean but it was so clear and and like i said we tried to we thought maybe the moon maybe we looked down on the seat next to us in the console there was no sunglasses there the moon wasn't coming through there or anything and i just like i said we put our hand in front of it to block and it was still there
1: maybe it was the uh, maybe it was uh, the blues brothers maybe it was the ghost of jim belushi or
4: john belushi rather i don't i don't know hey (laughs) i have another real quick story if it's okay um I got about a minute here, so. Okay, um, I, we were, um, when I was about 15, about 1975, I was, we were at home here, my parents were out, my friend was up here, and I walked, we were sitting in the living room, and I walked, I walked into my bedroom for some reason, and I looked up on my wall, and I saw this white, glowing face. Now, this was a face, and it was scowling at me. And I don't know what, we, we were sitting here, and I, I guess my friend and I were having a couple of beers. And I don't know, maybe this was my guardian, maybe it was my guardian angel. I, I don't know, maybe he was mad at me because we shouldn't have been, he was trying to tell me, you know, don't do that. You, maybe you're going down the wrong path because you're young. And I just, uh, I I don't know, It was. i never seen anything like that. My fr- I called my friend and he looked and he said, I, I looked and I said, look, Jerry, and he looked at it and he said, what is that? And by the time we looked, it was gone. But it was a yellowish glowing face about as round as a regular human face, and it was, but it was scowling at me, so mean. It's kind of, it's freaked me out to this day.
1: Wow. Uh, we've heard of, we talked about shadow people, Rosemary, but never kind of a white, yellowish uh, a face. Well, Maybe it was
3: my guardian angel. There, age, there well, are manifestations know. like that, and some of them are one-off, and uh, if people can't relate it to what's going on in their lives, can't make a connection uh, as to, like, um, you know, uh, some sort of spirit breaking through to impart some message... Uh, we just have to chalk it up to one of those one-offs that falls into the mystery category.
4: Mm, it, it, scared, it scared me. That was the only two apparitions I've ever seen, but they're both—they were both just uh, so different. You Great
1: know? stories, John, and uh, I, I appreciate you calling in and uh, sharing. Thanks for checking in from Ohio, the Buckeye State. You are. All right, uh, and we will uh, continue to take some calls with Rosemary till the top of the hour. We'll. Uh, uh, Talk about whatever paranormal activity that you've encountered, whether it's a poltergeist, whether it's a possession, a curse, uh, whether it's uh, uh, shadow people. Uh, What is the sort of the number one type of entity that people are having trouble with these days, Rosemary?
3: It continues to be shadow people. This is such a common phenomenon. People encounter shadow people more than they encounter ghosts. Uh, and even though there are a lot of people out there looking for ghosts, it's the shadow people. And uh, the newest form that they're, they've been taking for the past couple of decades or so that is, is on the rise is the black-eyed children, or the black-eyed people, we're calling them now, because it's black-eyed adults as well as children. And um, uh, these are, uh, uh, they look human, uh, but they have solid black eyes and sometimes they have saw teeth um, and they're, um, uh, they have a damaging effect on people just like the shadow people do. Um, they, uh, they, want, they come up, they approach people like in parking lots, they want help, they want to touch people and when they do then the person becomes a victim of bad luck, illness, uh, poltergeist phenomena in the house, even uh, f- uh, feeling some kind of attachment to them. Uh, and we're seeing a big increase in those kinds of cases.
1: I received an, uh, in fact, you and I talked about black eyed uh, children uh, well, several months ago after I received an email from a woman who was in a, a Walmart parking lot late at night and uh, suddenly looked around and her car was, oh, I wouldn't say surrounded, but there were about seven, eight of these uh, children. Many of them were wearing hoodies. And uh, they wanted her, they were very insistent, they wanted her to drive them someplace. They wanted inside her car, and she was so shaken. Uh, she just got the heck out of there, but uh, uh, you're right. These sightings of black-eyed children or black-eyed people wanting to come into your house and so forth, uh, it's it's spreading. All right, back with uh, your calls and more of our paranormal news roundup with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. We'll talk about the Leonardo self-portrait that was hidden from Hitler in case it gave him magic powers. Back with more of the Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. All right, uh, let's go up to Guelph, Ontario now and pick it up with Patricia. Patricia, you're on the line with Rosemary Ellen Guiley.
5: Patricia, are you there? Can you hear me? All right, we've got you locked in. Go ahead. Oh, okay, thank you for taking my call. Um I have a bit of a problem with uh teleportation. You have a problem with teleportation.
1: <laughs> How so? How so? Oh, we we lost her. All right. I
3: think
1: she teleported. She <laughs> I've never heard someone begin a phone call by saying she has a problem with teleportation. <laughs> All right. Uh well Patricia please call back. Um now One of the world's most famous self-portraits is going on very rare public display in the northern Italian city of Turin, and uh, it's a 500-year-old fragile, fading, red chalk drawing of the great one, the master Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, But for years, many people actually believe it's got mystical powers, and at one time, it was supposedly hidden from Adolf Hitler, because... They thought that uh, that he might actually gain those magical powers. What can you tell me about this, about this uh, portrait of Leonardo, Rosemary?
3: It's very haunting, and it's had a legend associated... Well, Leonardo da Vinci has had a variety of legends associated with him that uh, if you associated with him, uh, contemplated him, meditated on him, some of his genius would rub off on you. And this legend arose over this self-portrait that if you gazed into his face, especially his eyes, uh, that that, his genius would then come into you in in a a magical way. It's a very haunting uh, portrait. And interestingly, the eyes do not look directly at the viewer. They're staring off into some unknown uh, distance. And um, I, I find that rather curious. But the thing about the Nazis is they were very interested in using occult and magical powers as a way of asserting their dominance in the world and winning the war. Um, Himmler was the driving force behind that, uh, but many of the top-level Nazis participated in uh, rituals and uh, were looking for ways to harness occult power. One of the things they did was identify uh, some of the magical adepts in the country. Uh, There were many magical lodges at the time, and they uh, rounded up and even arrested some of those um, uh, adepts, uh, and they wanted to extract their secrets out of them, as though these people possessed unusual powers that could command armies of demons, for example, and uh, that the Nazis could learn how to harness that. One of those individuals was Franz Barden, and he was tortured in prison uh, for secrets that he he never gave up. But um, the same interest could have been transferred to this portrait as well, and it was hidden during the war out of uh, the fear that if it fell into Nazi hands, uh, if the portrait did indeed have any magical power of conferring genius, that uh, the Nazis could take advantage of that.
1: Conferring genius. Geez, I'd like to get my hands on that portrait.
3: <laughs> uh, I know. It's, uh, Leonardo da Vinci was uh, one of the most outstanding uh, persons in, I think, all of human history. And um, uh, there have been um, many examinations of his, what might have been his thought processes and the way he got his ideas and where they came from. Uh, a lot of it remains a mystery.
1: All right. Uh, Patricia from Guelph has uh, rejoined us uh, with the teleportation problem. Patricia?
5: Uh, Yes, sir.
1: Thanks for calling back.
5: Uh, You're welcome. Um, I've been experiencing that particular phenomenon (laughs) since I was very, very young, about eight, nine years old. Now, sometimes it's voluntary, sometimes it's involuntary. And when it's involuntary, it's Sometimes I had a few bad scares where I never got back to myself. But I see a lot of things that I shouldn't be seeing. And when it's voluntary, I know where I'm going and what I'm seeing and what's happening. But the problem sometimes is I can see what I'm seeing. But I don't know exactly and precisely where it is. I can see store signs or street names, or um, but not cities or whatever. I was just wondering how uh, – well, the scary thing is uh, sometimes on the media or the news, a couple of days later, um, something will crop up to – uh, coincide with the event that I had just ex- I had experienced. Are you
1: talking about out of body experiences, like an
5: astral travel
1: type uh, situation? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. All right, Rosemary. Uh,
3: so, are are you projecting yourself into the future? Uh, is that what you're talking about with the events that then appear in the media, or um, you just starting to witness things uh, as they are occurring in a distant location?
5: Okay. The. Um The the ones that are appearing on the media are involuntary uh, out-of-body travel. Mm -hmm. And the the ones that I want to see, like I want to go visit my son out in BC and whatever, and I'll tweak his toes or pinch his nose, and and I can verify that that happens. And his surroundings, how he has his room or his apartment set up, and I've never seen it, and he's never told me about it, I just get a little bit unnerved when I hear it on the, on the radio or the media. So how well, can I control that or find out
3: exactly where I've been? Um, there are people who have uh, a marked ability to buy, locate, uh, to project. You're projecting out of body uh, to distant locations, and this is usually an ability that, that comes with a lot of intense uh, spiritual study. Uh, You know, like there are paths in yoga, for example, that this is one of the superpowers that's a side effect of that, saints have been known to bilocate. Padre Pio was quite famous for that. He would bilocate when people called on him out of emotional need, and uh, he would spontaneously uh, bilocate to a distant location to minister to them with uh, prayer and healing, for example. And uh, so, in your case, the involuntary ones um, might have an emotional connection to them. You know, events that have uh, highly charged emotional energy are um, have the capability of spontaneously pulling on your uh, your own emotional cords to to draw you out. There are ways that you could probably uh, get it under better management, um, and uh, that would be to. Uh, um, Consult somebody who's a spiritual master in um, the spiritual arts like yoga or the martial arts.
1: Okay, I've got to jump in uh, here, Rosemary. Okay, we've got to uh, take a time out. We'll uh, come back, take more calls. Thank you for your call, Patricia. Fascinating. Thank you. Good luck with that. Rosemary Ellen Guiley stays with us here on The Conspiracy Show. Questions, comments for Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator, researcher, author of, uh, it's about 60 books now, isn't it, Rosemary?
3: It is, yes. Number 60 will be out in the spring.
1: All right. Uh, the, uh, the Scotsman, interesting headline here in the, uh, the Scottish newspaper, London Museum, the famous London Museum planned to shoot and steal Nessie, as in the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, what's going on here, Rosemary?
3: Well, all this happened, according to the records, uh, back in the 1930s, and uh, demonstrates uh, a a lack of awareness about what these creatures really are. Uh, You know, assuming them to be something that could be captured, uh, cut apart, uh, assuming that these are uh, real physical creatures, when in fact all the evidence that we have now um, in cryptozoology research indicates more and more that uh, these are creatures who, who really live between worlds. They're not in our dimension. They're in, from some other dimensional reality, and uh, they cross over into ours. So they don't really have uh, a physical uh, corporeality that could ever be shot or captured. And uh, that's why we never really uh, have a Bigfoot carcass around anywhere. Any of the sea monsters have never been uh, caught. Uh, dog men have never been caught. They've been seen and witnessed, and even photographed in some cases. We have uh, that photograph of Nessie, a very controversial one. But um, uh, it, it seems that uh, whoever was behind that, uh, and the documents seem to be genuine. They just didn't have much of an awareness of what they were actually dealing with.
1: And, but it also shows that they, they took these sightings, uh, as you say, these documents date back to the 1930s, and uh, it shows that the, the, the museums took these sightings seriously, and they, they were ready to hire bounty hunters.
3: And, and we still find some of those kinds of beliefs today, uh, but for a long time, the, the whole field of cryptozoology, the study of unknown or mysterious creatures, um, the scientists who were involved in this uh, assumed these to be real uh, creatures who were just kind of hidden species, lost or hidden species, uh, left over from perhaps primeval times. And so therefore they were capable of being captured. And after decades and decades of trying with many sightings, uh, the evidence has has really swung the other way to indicate that uh, these are beings not entirely of this reality.
1: Uh, Let me just uh, share here. This is uh, from this article. In a letter dated March of that year, which is 1934, uh, the unnamed official, and this is from uh, Edinburgh's Royal Scottish Museum or the London Museum, I'm not sure which museum they're referring to, but in a letter March of that year, the unnamed official responded to questions about the museum's policy on Nessie. The message was black and white. Quote, Should you ever come within range of the monster, I hope you will not be deterred by humanitarian considerations from shooting him on the spot and sending the carcass to us in cold storage, carriage forward. The letter stated before adding, short of this, a flipper, a jaw or a tooth would be very welcome. It's absolutely incredible.
3: It really is, and then uh, on top of it, when you've got this rivalry between the the English and the and the Scottish over, you know, who could own the corpse of Nessie or a piece of Nessie, uh, it becomes uh, even more laughable.
1: You mentioned uh, these, uh, these creatures and how they may be interdimensional, and we had that earlier caller uh, talking about this uh, these pair of Ray Bans that it sort of mysteriously seem to emerge from you know the side of his car, uh, and you are suggesting again there, there could be this thin veil that exists between uh, this world and and the next or another dimension. Why is it that we have certain locations and and uh, I know you've documented this in in parts of the hudson valley and and uh possibly certain parts of West Virginia. Why is it that this veil seems to be thinner in some locations than others?
3: Some of it seems to have to do with the geophysical characteristics of the landscape. Uh, There's a profile that applies to many of these portal areas, and uh, they don't exhibit all the characteristics, but uh, any given portal will have uh, a significant number of them, and one is uh, the presence of uh, something in the soil that generates um, an electrical field or a magnetic field. Uh, quartz, granite, crystal, magnetite, and iron, especially. And uh, all of these manifestations, whether they're residual or some sort of intelligent presence, uh, seems to be affected by and may even be able to manipulate magnetic fields of energy. Um, Some of the areas have unusual magnetic field anomalies. There's something in the soil that warps uh, the uh, the magnetic field of the entire area uh, to a very high intensity, either negative or positive. And uh, these are associated with manifestations and also the ability of residual phenomena to linger in an area. High water tables, uh, strong uh, subterranean uh, streams uh, are factors as well. Um, marshy areas, um, and uh, we have also have to take into account the earth energies that have been documented in our country. In America, they haven't been well documented, unlike uh, parts of Europe and um, England. But the earth is crisscrossed with a lot of energy lines, and these interact with each other and with the, um, the uh, features of the soil. Uh, in West Virginia, for example, and in parts of the East Coast where I find a lot of these Uh, high-intensity areas, Uh, they're often in um, um, contoured land where there are uh, mountains or uh, a lot of deep valleys with a lot of streams in them, Uh, more isolated energy uh, places. Uh, However, portals can exist in your backyard, too, if you've got the right configuration. So uh, these are factors that we find over and over again in these thin boundary areas. And uh, I think there really is something to it. It's, it's hard to uh, do a scientific model for it. In fact, it even defies any sort of scientific model. But yet the circumstantial evidence is very consistent.
1: Would a place, for example, like the Skinwalker Ranch uh, near Ballard in, in Utah... Uh, where there, there's this whole host of paranormal activity, real, some of it UFO-related, uh, skinwalkers, of course, the Native American legend, the shapeshifters. Uh, has anyone ever done a, a soil sample test out there?
3: Uh, perhaps so, but I'm not uh, off the top of my head. I'm not aware of one. But one of the dominant characteristics there is, and there is a very pronounced ridge. I've been out there. Uh, there's this. Uh, like a backbone that literally sticks up um, uh, and runs through the property, uh, where um, much of that activity was documented. Although a, a much larger area is affected, and the Native Americans considered this the the domain of the Skinwalkers, and therefore it's it's cursed land. It's unfit for human habitation. You shouldn't trespass on it. So that's another kind of uh, energy that uh, we find in some of these areas where um, entities, who are these interdimensional entities who share the planet with us, they, they have land attachments, and uh, they're often active in areas that have the natural energy that enables them to manifest. And uh, that seems to be the case with the Skinwalker property, too.
1: Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I, um, I interviewed William J. Hall, uh, the author of The World's Most Haunted House, which is, in, I, I know you're in uh, Connecticut, and uh, are you far from Bridgeport?
3: I'm about 35, 40 miles from Bridgeport, and I've never had the chance to visit the house uh, that uh, Mr. Hall documented. I did a testimonial for his book, however, because it is a well-known case and was very well documented. Uh, and um, there is a lot of haunting activity uh, in that part of the state of Connecticut. So it, that house could sit in like a pool of energy that's conducive to uh, residual energy and spirit activity lingering.
1: Would, would you agree that the, the Bridgeport haunting, uh, and again, this, this, this case going back to the early 70s, I mean thousands of people supposedly saw paranormal activity in this house, including... You know, first responders, police, firemen, uh, et cetera. I mean, and, and they there were police reports written on it. This must be one of the most documented, I mean, officially documented hauntings in history.
3: It is well documented. And um, William Hall was also aided by the fact that there were a lot of historical records that he could track down people, uh, people who had witnessed things, lived there. And uh, a lot of times that's one of the the biggest difficulties that a paranormal investigator has is finding records to track things down. Um, Sometimes they're missing, they can't be accessed, nobody knows. And uh, so the portrait of this house is very thorough. Now, uh, up in Cape Cod in Massachusetts, there are similar places. There's a a place uh, along the King's Highway, which runs out uh, toward the tip, uh, out to Provincetown, that has a very long history of houses and buildings located along that highway being intensely haunted. There's a house called the House of the Eleven Ghosts, where uh, activity has been documented for many decades, and first responders, in that case, have seen apparitions. Uh, There was um, uh, a fire in the house once, and the first responders... Uh, saw what looked like people trapped inside the house, and they were apparitions, uh, especially the apparition of a woman who then floated out to the lawn. And uh, I think she asked where her dog was, and uh, the, the first reaction of the, the, uh, the fireman there was that she was a real person, and then she disappeared. Uh, and she's been seen by other people, too. So uh, these sorts of cases exist in very active pockets.
1: I, uh, I I know a family, uh, they uh, they attended the, the same church, and uh, their family business uh, started by the father was uh, they do crime scene cleanup. Now, they don't remove bodies, but the, the aftermath, you can imagine, the blood and so forth, it's a horrible uh, task, and somebody has to do it, and uh, that's what they do. And uh, they have seen things that, uh, when they told me about them, just curled my toes. I mean, uh, you know... It, They've they've witnessed. I mean, full on apparitions. Uh, they later f- discovered were you know the the, the deceased, the people that had just been removed, their body had been removed from the, the premises. You know, moments before they arrived, uh, you know, on a, on a in a body bag, and uh, uh, demonic. Uh, what can only be described as demonic activity. Uh, so it's when you when you get these people sort of alone, and they're not necessarily on the record. Uh, police included they will tell you things that will make the hackles on the back of your neck stand up
3: and it's no surprise to me uh, because uh, first of all especially where violent crime has been committed uh, I think uh, people are in such shock the soul is in such a state of shock that it doesn't depart immediately and so there would be uh, very dramatic impressions apparitional impressions uh, still on the scene, and also where you have horrific crime, rape and horrific murders uh, being committed, uh, that draws a very negative spirit energy. Some of the perpetrators of these crimes, I am convinced, are under the influence of demonic entities who are feeding off that violence, and they incite the violence. They encourage the person to uh, to commit these acts. So they're on on the scene, too. They're still... Uh, feeding off that energy. And uh, it doesn't surprise me that uh, these people uh, can be spontaneous witnesses. It must shake them to their very core.
1: Rosemary, always a pleasure. The website VisionaryLiving.com. We'll talk to you in December.
3: Thank you, Richard. It's been a very lively evening.
1: All right, thank you. Thank you to Tim Spreen, Albert Vinzel, back next week with... Gail Nix-Jackson talking about the Orville Nix JFK film. Hope you'll be along for that. So long.